Ferguson, Missouri. The spark for what would become daily street protests was the killing of an unarmed African-American teenager. 18-year-old Michael Brown was gunned down by a white police officer on August the 9th. In the days that followed, the police responded to the demonstrations with massive force. Force is their message. We will shoot, we will kill if necessary. An autopsy would show that Brown was shot at least six times, twice in the head. He was the fourth unarmed black man to be killed in the United States by police in the span of a month. The street protests and police tactics brought Ferguson into the national and international spotlight. Things quickly spiraled. Reports of gunshots fired from the crowd. A state of emergency was declared. The National Guard was deployed and the U.S. Attorney General launched a federal investigation into the killing. Fault Lines was in Ferguson to witness how Michael Brown's killing sparked something bigger, exposing tensions that had been bubbling beneath the surface for years. On his knees! This is more than Michael Brown. This is about civilians against law enforcement, corrupt law enforcement. WLP, Brattleboro. 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live at W... VEW.org. Welcome to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We're on the air every Sunday at noon. As a group of educators, we seek to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. That the views and opinions expressed on this program are that of the host and of the guests, not of the radio station. So we just heard a clip from Ferguson, Missouri from back in 2014 following the police shooting of unarmed 18-year-old uh, man Michael Brown. And a lot of what you heard in the background there was uh, the Ferguson community um, following his death taking to the streets in protest of the violence used by police in Ferguson. And that protest was met by more police violence and also National Guard. All right, so my name is Nicole, or Nick. I'm a teacher up in Springfield, and... Josh Wyman, an educator in Western Mass and here in Brattleboro as well. And I am Anna Milani, and I'm also a local educator with the, the Spark teacher training program out of Marlboro, which you two are graduates of, also yes. teach in the program. Mm -hmm. I also am a grad student at UMass Amherst. And last week on Indigo Radio, we had a discussion around patriarchy. If you missed that show, you can catch it on our iTunes um, podcast or the Facebook page. We'll link to it. And this week is the last show of 2019. We are headed into 2020. Mm -hmm. And we're going to focus on social movements throughout the decade, really focusing also uh, much on the U.S., even though, of course, that infiltrates into the rest of the world. Uh, and I was looking at this last night, and something my uh, professor of mine said to me at the end of the semester, I was talking to him about how I was feeling sort of despondent about seeing all these mass protests all around the world, in Latin America, in the Middle East, I'm thinking. And I said, what's going on here? Like, why isn't it happening here? And he looked at me and he said, that's not true. It is happening here. And those are very small economies you're looking at, and that we have a huge economy here. And 
I was thinking about his words last night as I started looking through the decades starting um, 2010 to 2019 and thinking about what has happened. And I was really actually thinking about how so much has happened here in the U.S. and so many people have taken to the streets and really resisting a lot of these oppressive conditions that are happening in their lives. So today we're going to really think about how these different struggles are connected. And I wanted to ask both of you, I know I there were certain images that stood out to me last night I can talk about, but if both of you could talk about maybe an image or an event or events that have stood out to you in the last decade. Yeah, one of the things that um, over the past you know 10 years it's been really struck to me was um, the gun violence uh, happening in our schools and also out in our streets. And especially uh, after the shooting at Stoneham Douglas uh, High School in Parkland, Florida, and these youth organizing on a national level around um, gun violence and, and ending that in their schools. That was something for me that those past 10 years has been continuing to cycle through every year. For me, I think that there's a series of images and they're often like the images of black people being shot by cops uh, laying, whether it's in the subway or on the street in their car. Those are images that are kind of seared into my mind of like, wow, this is so painful for people. Why did this happen? Why is this happening? And then to see people be in the streets together and try to organize around the the um, injustice. There was an image of a black woman. She's standing in this black and white dress in front of a like a SWAT line and she has her hands out and the police are coming to put those plastic cuffs around her and she's just standing there. There's no one else around her. She's not a threat. She has no what it's clear like her dress is small enough that you can see there's nothing on her. Mm-hmm. But just her presence mm-hmm. in front of that police line you know, makes her a threat. Yeah, I remember looking at that last night. One of the ones that really stood out to me that makes me really happy is Chelsea Manning uh, at the Gay Pride Parade in New York City. And she just looks so happy. And it's it was in uh, 2017, and it was soon after she was released. And it also reminds me, too, of a more recent image of Assange, Julian Assange, being carried out of the Ecuadorian embassy. Um, and I think about those two people that have also carried us through this decade, I mean, as symbolic, but uh, Chelsea Manning was first imprisoned in 2010, and she is now imprisoned again because she won't testify around Assange. Assange is now in prison in Belmarsh Jail, and we'll talk a little bit more about like surveillance and confinement later in the show. Another image I just want to point out, too, because we're going to start with the Occupy movement. I think last night I was like, oh, wow, right. Occupy started in 2011. Mm -hmm. But there was an image of students uh, being sprayed by Officer Lieutenant John Pike in November of 2011. If people remember that shot, they're sitting there and he's just spraying them with tear gas at UC Davis. Nick, were you going to say something? I mean, yeah, that picture stands out to me, too, just to see that kids are sitting on the ground, their arms locked. They're not they're asking for their for for what their communities need to be healthy, you know, whether it's your school community, whether it's a community on your block, whatever it is. But the fact that just the presence of people together is seen as, you know, dangerous to the state says a lot about where we're at in the yeah. world, right? 
So, but I think what's important to to say before we go to a song break is that, you know, there's many different things that have happened throughout this decade. There's many different movements. There's many different groups of people trying to organize. But for me, um, in the conversation that we've been having and planning this show, it's important to make connections between those 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 activities and struggles in order to grow a, a larger movement for justice that is connected. Um, and seeing our struggles as connected is, I think, really important, especially in the face of all the div- the division that and the divisiveness that is thrown at us by media, by corporate media, but also just generally what, you know, divisiveness we're taught in school, too. Mm-hmm. Do you want to introduce the song we're going to start off with? Sure. So we're going to go to a song. It's called Stand Up Standing Rock old and calloused so that we may stay so that we may unite unity our tool no weapons are found in this court of rule men becoming ki steadfast in their guard protecting women's hearts as their song become roots roots to cast out healing for all sentient beings to honor sacred mother heart forward we heal the salmon will run the mountain will breathe the rivers will flow the rainbow is here and prophecy tells us all generations will hear Nations and our people that have been living here for thousands of years. Stand up. We've been fighting for our freedom since the Nina and the Peter and the Santa Maria. Stand up. Like Geronimo, Sitting Bull, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Planet Peltier. Stand up. Now they poison in the waters for our sons and our daughters, so we on the frontier. We one nation, one cause, one people, one tribe. Now it's us against the pipeline. Get on your feet for standing rock, and we'll show you how strong we could be when we unify. To Well, 
welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WBEW Broadboro Community Radio. And you're here with Nick and Josh, and this is Anna, and we are discussing the decade and connecting those struggles. You were just listening to a Standing Rock song. And 2010, if we go back there, one of the big movements, of course, was the Occupy Wall Street movement or Occupy movements, as they became known as. And that really came on the heels of the 2008 financial crisis, that people had a lot of anger at the bank bailouts. There was a lot of discussion in this country and then throughout the world about wealth inequality. And one of the slogans, of course, was we are the 99%. And they started these um, camps. People took over common spaces, what were public spaces, and set up what they called communes and put their tents out and had a lot of uh, teach-ins and discussions. And this started in September of 2011. By early 2012, police had forcibly removed all these people from these um, different camps. And I'm going to play a clip uh, from this movement, and then we'll just have a, a little bit of discussion talking about uh, what we think of the Occupy movement and how it did really get a lot of people who maybe had not been talking about it before around the wealth disparities in this country. September 17, 2011. A small group of people moved into Liberty Square in the Wall Street area of New York City. Their intentions were to protest and shed light on the injustices of our financial system and class inequality in the United States. Every day, the group grew in size and word began to spread about the movement that is now known as Occupy Wall Street. The word didn't spread through mainstream media, and immediately arose whether or not the lack of coverage was because it wasn't newsworthy, or because some of the people being protested against have the control over the various mainstream media outlets. On September 30th, we took a trip into the city to see what wasn't being talked about. Before we go on, let's go over some facts. 46.2 million Americans live below the poverty line. Unemployment is at 9.1%. At the end of 2010, consumer credit card debt reached $820 billion and was then surpassed by student loan debt at 850. 1% of the population controls 35% of the total wealth in our country. 5% of the population controls 60% of the total wealth. 20% of the population controls 85% of our total wealth. Since 2008, 4.6165 trillion dollars have been given to Citibank as part of the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, more commonly known as the bailout. Okay, uh, you were just listening to a short clip from um, a documentary on Occupy, uh, Occupy movement that started in September of, of 2011. And do you two have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, what's funny is that everybody's talking about the decade. And so I saw something recently that was talking about how, you know, tell us something that happened at the beginning of the decade and where we're at now. And so someone had posted what the rent was at the beginning of the decade and what it was now. And it had gone up at least $500. And then wow. she posted right next to it that the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage was still seven twenty-five. Mm-hmm. So it's like there is extreme inequality in this country, but for me, it's not just about the inequality, right? It's about the purpose of 
pushing wages down and how those mechanisms and that system continue to create these awful and terrible living conditions for people while, as this person was saying, that fewer and fewer people benefit from the work of everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Charles? Well, for me, especially with after this 2008 bailout um, and crash, like, the, the focus wasn't about supporting people. It was about supporting corporations. And, like, mm. it's, like, mm-hmm. that the very clearly was, like, that was the intent. Like, mm-hmm. people are hurting by these business practices, by these banks mismanaging and, and failing and for profits, right? And there are people still being hurt by this. And so I, when Occupy started up, I was, I was really excited about it because it was like, everybody's finally saying, no, this is, this is not good. We mm-hmm. can't be bailing out banks. We need to be supporting people, building communities. And um, for me, Occupy was very much that response to that. Yeah. Yeah. I also, yeah, I think the benefits um, or the, the things that came out of Occupy of having people in spaces having a lot of these conversations is always a beneficial thing of people trying to work out why are our lives like this. Uh, there was also a little bit of an Occupy in Brattleboro. I don't know if people remember that, mm-hmm. but I definitely saw it in Boston. I know, and I know a, a group of us from here went to New York. One of the I think very valid critiques of Occupy is that it was often void of a class analysis in the sort of wider discussion of it in saying this, we are the 99%, but not really looking at the intricacies of that and that a lot of it was really about uh, distribution and if we just redistribute the wealth. And reform the system. Exactly. Mm. So if, if can we make a better capitalism for the 99%? And I think that's um, a valid critique of it, uh, but often that comes out of, of movements like this is to kind of say, well, where do we need to go uh, further with this? Yeah. But it wasn't, it, it made a lot of people active and it mm-hmm. made a lot of people think that hadn't thought before. And I feel like for me, that was the beauty of Occupy was that it was popular, that many people could just go down to New York or go to Boston and participate and learn. And I think for me that in, you know, moving forward is, is an important lesson to take. Yeah. I think it's interesting too the response by, uh, you know, state and local officials to these Occupy movements, like in New York with, within a year, move, forcibly moving all these people off of this occupied space. It very much <clears throat> feels like this Occupy movement uh, shook up a lot of things for that one, per, you know, for that one percent that's mm-hmm. holding all this wealth. Like they felt threatened by it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, what better way to suppress that than use their tools that they have available? Which happened to be the state in this case. Mm-hmm. Nick, do you want to bring us into Black Lives Matter, which of course is a ongoing movement, um, but really had its roots in this decade? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I think that the idea that popular protest can be uh, politicizing, right, is something important about Black Lives Matter, particularly because we saw all of these people, these black people being murdered across the U.S. And DeRay McKesson and Opal Tomaiti, who who we'll hear in this next clip, talk about the significance of social media playing part in showing people that this isn't just happening in their neighborhood. It's not just happening in one place. This is actually a larger problem. You know, you think 
about last August is that it was a focus on police violence. It was the death of Mike Brown. It was Kajim Powell. And I think that it took us almost six, seven months to convince people that like this was not just in one part of the country. This was everywhere. And I think that that was so much of the beginning of the protest. It was about um, saying, here is a problem and believe me. Like that was it. When I looked at this Facebook status um, my friend Alicia had put together, it really resonated with me. It hit me right in my gut. And I knew that those three words really captured what I was feeling and what I knew countless others had been feeling. You know, fast forward two years, you know, went from words to shifting the narrative to mobilizing people, using online tools to connect with one another. And now it's a, an actual movement. So black people dying by the state is not a new thing. Um, but the, the social media aspect of us having access to this information is, is what allowed for the movement to blow up the way it did and for more people to say, wait, this is happening, this is a real problem, right? Like in the 90s, we know of Rodney King getting beat by the police, but because there was no social media presence, we had to rely on mainstream media. It's not that we're just you know clicking a button or clicking like or retweeting and all of that but we're also taking to the streets. So you see students taking, challenging racism and structural racism at their institutions. You see people fighting at the workplace for a living wage, so that you see the fight for 15. You see women and girls taking a stand against police brutality. And then you I will light you up, get out! Wow. Now! Wow. Get out of the car! For a failure to signal, you're doing all of this for Get over there! Right, yeah. They were all really struck by what happened with Sandra Bland, right, in, in Texas. And I think that this happens more often than not. And what happened with, with Sandra Bland and when her family came forward was that a movement rallied behind them. I think that one of the challenges in the beginning now that I look back is that people sort of felt like this was something that would never happen to them. It would never be in their hometown. It would never, and then we saw all across the country um, people realize that this is much closer to them, right? That this is, there's a Mike Brown in every town, that Ferguson is, is really just one doorstep away. Those initial people in Ferguson who came out and said enough is enough and refused to go home on August night sort of laid the blueprint for people all across the country. And I think that that's really powerful. I do think that police violence is not the only issue of the movement, but it is uh, a central issue and it was the catalyst for people coming outside and staying outside. The beautiful thing about this movement is that there is no Dr. King. There is no Southern Christian Leadership Conference. There's no SNCC. There are individuals who have taken to the streets in uh, all cities from across the country and are everybody's using their voice and that's what social media is a platform for everyone. So in the coming year and coming years really I hope to see that we take on more structural issues. I see the beginnings of that so this call to divest from policing and reinvest in black futures and so that looks like more mental health services, that looks like restorative justice, that looks like uh, more job opportunities in our communities. What we're going for is a multiracial democracy that works for all of us. And I believe that if we continue to connect, if we continue to fight with, and continue to join hands, that we'll get there. Now, 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 keep the right fist in there. For 40, for 40. All right, welcome back to Indigo Radio. 
We are on WBEW Brattleboro Community Radio 107.7. And that was a clip um, of Opal Tomati and DeRay McKesson describing the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of what the reaction was to the murder of Mike Brown by, by the Baltimore police. I'm sorry, the Ferguson police. And so they talk a lot about um, state violence. And so in the case of Sandra Bland and down in Texas, um, where she was murdered by police as well, um, there was then a movement behind the family. And so I think what's important here is that there is this refusal to go home by people in the streets, um, particularly in Ferguson, which was met by some crazy police repression, some crazy state repression that was tear gas and water cannons and live fire in the streets. Um, and then a real like criminalization of the people who are saying, I'm angry that you keep murdering us without any kind of accountability and enough is enough. Right. And so there is this and we see it in other examples. Right. We talked about Occupy. We'll talk about Standing Rock. Um, but the militarization of the police in this country in the last decade has really amped like ramp, ramped up. Yeah. And actually Ferguson. So the National Guard came out in Ferguson and that actually brought I was reading something last night that it brought to um the national attention, the militarization of police, even though this also goes back decades of like slow, um, increasing militarization of police. Mm -hmm. But that at that point, with the brutality that happened, Obama actually, during Ferguson, withdrew um, this legislation that said that the military could be giving certain types of weapons to departments, and Trump actually reversed that. But there's been a period of time where other like military uh, st style weaponry has been given to local police departments mm -hmm. in Keene, New Hampshire, right? Yeah, right, mm -hmm. just around here. Because mm -hmm. I was looking at this, it says, and this is why I'm saying it goes back um, way past 2010, but mm -hmm. it says since the 1990s, 4.2 billion worth of equipment has been transferred from the Defense Department to domestic police agencies mm -hmm. through the 1033 program. And that came out with the fight against the war on drugs um, and then the war on terrorism. So there's always been some sort of reasoning for it. And then they said that um, roughly $34 billion to police departments throughout the country since 9-11 to purchase more gear for their arsenal of military weapons. So, yeah, it's definitely something that I think that we need to increasingly pay attention to. I did a workshop with uh, high school kids last summer around the militarization of police and I showed them photos of Ferguson and photos of Baltimore and I asked them if it was military or if it was the police and it and then I showed them photos of Afghanistan and Iraq and it was really interesting for them to see like oh wow that looks like the military yeah I mean they come out with crazy amounts of weaponry right right and so well even in just private like companies making um weapons. Um, it, in 2016, the highest number of, man, of manufactured firearms in the United States, 11.5 million. And that's like, in, and that's including like just all the main guns manufactured and then like not even for the military, right? And that includes guns being manufactured for police and private citizens, like 11.5 million firearms in one year, the highest, right? It's outrageous how like ingrained it is into, into 
our lives that like this is very real and it has like a lot of power behind it yeah and i mean if there is at all any kind of resistance right real resistance to the state that's what happens that's Mm -hmm. what we're seeing happening and that's what we've seen happen you know across the u.s Mm -hmm. do we want to go to a song we are all right we're gonna play one of my favorite songs from the decade which is uh brother ali it is called (laughs) uncle sam goddamn the name of this song uncle sam It's a show tune, but the show ain't been written for it yet. We gonna see if Tony Jerome and the band can maybe work that one. Man. Straighten me out right quick. I like it so far, man. Yeah. Come on, let's go. Welcome to the United States. Land of the thief, home of the slave. Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and proud. Let's do the real. Come on now. Smoke and mirrors, sights and stars. Stoner for the cross in the name of God. Bloodshed, genocide, rape and fraud. Written to the pages of the law, good law. The cold cotton and latchkey child ran away one day and started acting foul. King of where the wild things are, daddy's proud. Cause the Roman Empire done passed it down. Imported and tortured the workforce and never healed the wounds or shook the curse off. Not a grown up Goliath nation holding open auditions for the part of David. Can you feel? Nothing can save you. You question the rain, you get rushed in and chained up. Fish raised, but I must be insane because I can't figure a single single witness to Welcome to the United States, land of the thief, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and power is God. Welcome to the United States, land of the thief, home of the slave. The Grand Imperial Guard, where the dollar is sacred and power is God. How must bow to the fat and lazy? The Obey me and why do they hate me? Who me? Only two generations away from the world's most despicable slavery trade. Pioneered so many ways to degrade a human being that it can't be changed to this day. Legacy so ingrained in the way that we think we no longer need change to be slaves. Lord, it's a shameful display. The overseers even got raped along the way. Cause the children can't escape from the pain and they born with the poison and the hatred in their veins. Welcome back to Indigo Radio. Uh, we're uh, this week discussing uh, end of the decade. Uh, it's going to be 2020 here, and we had a lot of um, reflection to get into this week. So, so far, uh, we've recapped about the Black Lives Matter group, Occupy movement, um, and also just that those connections within them. I, just before the song break here, I brought up some quotes, um, some numbers about um, gun manufacturing, firearm manufacturing here in the United States. Um, I'd like to share a little piece here from Emma Gonzalez, one of those students. Uh, she was a senior at Stoneham Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida during that shooting. And um, here's some of her words on the pervasiveness, as she sees it, of the gun violence here in the United States. It's not just schools. It's churches. It's malls. It's streets. It's porches, it's concerts, like the one in Las Vegas, it's nightclubs, it's everywhere. And that's the common thread here, one of the common threads here. Like, Parkland was voted the safest city in Florida Florida last year. 
and they're saying, oh, it shouldn't, it could never have happened there. Well, it did, because gun violence isn't picky. It happens where it happens, because it's a gun. I'm highly cognizant of the fact that it's not just schools, and we can't allow this to become a school safety issue, because it's not a school safety issue, it's a people safety issue, it's a public safety issue. Alright, yeah. I think Emma's words about that being a about this being a public safety issue is very real for us. Um, you know, in talking about Black Lives Matter and the violence that's being acted upon us, um, it's not just on the streets. It's not just in the schools. Like this is everywhere, mm -hmm. right? And this is because of a lot of things, including just we have a lot of weapons that we're manufacturing, right, for selling purposes and you know whatever we chose to do with them after, I guess, but. There's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, just some numbers to put this into perspective about, you know, school shootings. Um, since so 1999, Columbine uh, shooting happened, and it, it rocked us, right? Like, this wasn't something that we experienced, right? It wasn't normal for us. Here we are now, you know, um, in 2018 with more than 216 school shootings over that time. And, like, increasingly over the last decade, more so. I mean, in total, you've got um, 141 people killed by all this. Like, this is this is not this is not just a misnomer. It doesn't this like, and it shouldn't be normal for us either. Like, this is real, and we have to address it. Yeah, and I mean, if we think about weapons manufacturers, right? They're not just producing guns; they're producing war machines, mm -hmm. and that stuff isn't just used here in the U.S. It's used elsewhere, and so companies are profiting off of the destruction of the world and and human life mm -hmm. what's interesting for me is both tying together what you were saying earlier Anna about policing being militarized through this act which allows you know local law enforcement to take in all these old war machines plus then we have you know there's kids in school but like Emma's saying it's everywhere mm -hmm. it's clear what's happening and the people that are fighting back are still facing those same guns, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's becoming more and more clear on the street that Lockheed Martin makes <laughs> more than all of us combined, right? Yeah. And that that is not benefiting us, mm -hmm. right? That is that job that people are being paid maybe seven twenty-five an hour for to produce mm -hmm. a piece of a gun. That's not benefiting us in the end. It's being turned on us. Yeah. I mean, uh, this escalation, this violence, all of this stuff, um, it's not just happening in a vacuum, right? There are reasons that it's happening for, and it's not just the police are noticing that people are out in the streets. Like, there, there are protocols and, and ideas at work here that are uh, that are putting these police out into the street. So this is very much, this isn't just a reaction to, this is like, this is the system at work here. I mean, the other interesting thing for me is like how much money we spend on the military. Yeah, it's a lot. Oh my God. No wonder that we don't have, that there's lead in the pipes mm -hmm. in schools or that there's holes in the ceiling in schools or that people don't have health care and are dying on well, the streets or losing their lead homes. Too, Flint, Michigan was a thing of the decade too, mm -hmm. of lead in the water, which is still trying to recover from that. And actually, this is a good kind of uh, transition into Standing Rock, which I think was a huge thing um, and movement of the, the decade and a really important one 
to talk about. Standing Rock, I mean, brought together over 300 tribes, both um, in this country and from outside the country. Uh, they they call themselves Waters Protectors. This this happened in April of 2016 and went to, it was sort of disbanded. And again, the police came in in February of 2017. But I know what really stands out to me with Standing Rock is the image of the dogs. And Amy Goodman did a really thorough reporting on, on that that I think really went viral of these dogs being let loose on protesters, unarmed protesters. And um, also the freezing water. That was another thing I remember from that time of water being sprayed on protesters. Again, the National Guard was was brought in into Standing Rock. And uh, at one point, the, the, the encampment was the size of 10,000 people. It was a huge thing. Again, Obama, if you'll remember, halted it. The protest led to him halting the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And then in um, January of 2017, Trump signed an executive order reversing it, which was one of his first things that uh, legislation that he signed in. And then in May, May 2017, the first oil went through. And I know they've already had some leaks, right? Mm -hmm. They've already had spills. Already. Yep. I was also looking up to last night that um, today the Standing Rock Sioux tribe continues to be engaged in the court battles. So it's something that is still going on. I feel like you don't hear about it as much, but they're still trying to get it shut down. And then um, energy transfer and um, Sunoco, is that how you say that? Sunoco? They own the pipeline and they, right now there's um, 570,000 barrels that go through it a day. They want to double that. Uh, which people are, of course, saying that's just going to add more harm to the water, water, the farm, the animals, the environment. So we have a clip that uh, we're going to play um, on Standing Rock just to give a little bit. Nick, do you want to say anything about this clip? Yeah, sure. I think it just gives a little bit of background about what was happening to people that were out in the winter cold of North Dakota, right? Yeah. And like you were saying, the freezing water that was being sprayed on people um, where they were living and why they were there. On the Great Plains of North Dakota, Native American activists have been boldly standing up to a large energy company to prevent the construction of an oil pipeline under the Missouri River. And the world is watching. Protesters have endured dog attacks, tear gas, uh, water cannons. The pipeline could threaten the water supply of millions. Though the self-described water protectors have achieved a momentary victory, has been denied the permit. with all that they're up against. This pipeline is being built to safety standards that far exceed what, what the government requires us to do. Including the incoming administration of Donald Trump. Political activists will no longer write the rules. This is going to be his first big fight. But this isn't a monarchy yet. They'll have to achieve a lot more if their struggle is to be a long-standing success. We are facing darker times. My home is right there. My son is buried there. Who would put a pipeline next to your son's grave? All right, and that was some, some a clip from Standing Rock. We're going to go to a song. Uh, thanks for joining us at Indigo Radio. We're going to play Dead Prez Police State. In human society of this thing that's called the state, what is the state? The state is this organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison 
2020 and there has been a lot uh, going on as always and we were just talking about uh, gun violence and Standing Rock. I know Nick you wanted to um, talk a little bit about criminalization. Yeah so we have talked about Occupy right um, the kids in Parkland and their movement against gun violence uh, Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock and so for me a thread in all of this is that a lot of activists are criminalized for their activities. And that goes back, right, in US history, we could talk about uh, COINTELPRO, we could talk about the Espionage Act, we could talk about Eugene Debs, we could talk about a, a, a lot of US history um, where people that are against what the state is imposing on us have been made an example um, to scare the rest of us into submission and so I think that actually something I read last night was about how Standing Rock activists are still being charged now, are still being held now in, in prisons and are being, you know, they'll be put on trial, put on trial for whatever it, for a lot of it was about like damaging company property, private property. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their lives may be ruined, right? Unless the rest of us get behind them, mm-hmm. which is also a possibility. But there's also been a lot of Black Lives Matters activists that have just shown up dead. Mm-hmm. No one knows what's happened to them, called suicides, right? Yeah. Ruled suicides. And and so I think that that's something that we need to be aware of. Um, and shout out to Fred Hampton, right? Who was murdered mm-hmm. by the FBI, mm-hmm. um, along with many other Black Panthers and Leonard Pelletier, who's still behind bars. Mm-hmm. So I think that that brings us into our man, Edward Snowden. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, before we go to him, uh, just because you, you talked about Leonard Peltier and uh, different actors that have been behind bars, one of the things I noticed when I was looking at this list of the decade last night 
was the conversation about mass incarceration that has happened in the last decade. And I looked back and I saw that Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, came out in 2010, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people read. And, uh, you know, it looks at the history of incarceration, especially the uh, racial carceral state. And then the movie, uh, the documentary 13th, came out in 2016 which also a lot of people saw, which Michelle Alexander is in that, Angela Davis is in that. And it, it, it's, again, looking at uh, the conditions of prisons and jails in this country. And as people probably well know, the U.S. houses um, the world's, I think, number one amount of prisoners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, over 2 million, but then it's over 7 million that are on probation or caught up in the court system. And that has been a conversation that has been in the national dialogue. Uh, And I think a lot of it tends to go toward reform. Um, How can maybe we make these places better? Um, Where the conversation, and I know definitely some people are having this conversation, is really thinking about what is the functioning of the prison? Um, What does it mean when people say that they're against prisons and want abolition of prisons? Who does the the prison serve? What is the history of, of the prison? Uh, so that's something I just wanted to bring up too. Right, and there was the strike too, right? Yes. There yeah, was the prison yes. strike, and that's really important, yep. I think, to know. Is that, that, was that August 2018, and that it was well organized, mm-hmm. and there was heavy violence and repression towards those prisoners that refused to work. Yeah, because those people are essentially working for free. Yeah, right inside sure. of prisons, and so a lot of people talk about how our prisons should be more like Sweden, more humane. Right? right. Instead of looking at the history of why prisons exist in the first place in this land. Yeah. So let's go. Um, you know, it is hard to wrap up a decade in an hour. Seriously. Or minutes, <laughs> but, uh, we are doing, we're doing good. We're doing here. good. <laughs> so we're going to go to a, just a short clip of Edward Snowden. And this is from a very recent event, the Right Livelihood Award Ceremony, December 5th, where Amy Goodman is interviewing him from uh, where he is in Moscow. It was not an easy decision. It's one I think uh, anyone would rather avoid. But there's a question that we all face when we come into uh, contact with things that call into question our our deepest beliefs. Uh, I was always uh, very much an agent of government long before I worked for them. uh, Because I believed everything that I heard uh, and everything that I read um, from official sources because it, to me it, it seemed that they had no reason to, to lie to us. But through my time in government, uh, as I moved to more and more senior positions um, and worked more closely with each of the systems, I began to see uh, more evidence uh, that the private truths of what government was actually doing, was these things were very different uh, than the publicly presented versions of it. And nowhere was this more clear than in what I witnessed uh, in the creation of the system of global mass surveillance. Uh, This is a system that I wrote uh, eventually uh, in that year to a journalist by the name of Laura Poitras. It was totally indiscriminate and far beyond uh, even the very loose restrictions uh, of American law and I think um, international standards uh, that we've come to accept regarding surveillance. This was a new system uh, that saw everything that you did and, and did not care uh, or bear any regard whatsoever to the difference uh, between those suspected of crimes and those who had done nothing wrong. 
this is a system, the first system in history uh, that bore witness to everything, every border you cross, every purchase you make, every call you dial, every cell phone tower you pass, friend you keep, article you write, site you visit, and subject line you type, uh, was now in the hands of a system whose reach is unlimited, uh, but whose safeguards were not. And I felt, despite what the law said, that this was something that the public ought to know. So, All right, that was uh, Ed Snowden that you're just listening to talking about uh, what he did with uh, releasing the mass amount of um, global surveillance that was happening. And Nick and Josh, we're just kind of rounding out the show here, um, wondering your thoughts on that. I mean, he makes some interesting points, right? <clears throat> He's talking about the private truth of what he thought the government was. Mm-hmm. Right. And then that being so distinct from the public presentation of what the government is doing. <clears throat> and so I think that that's a thread throughout all of these pieces that we've discussed today is that there is what we see in the news and in the corporate media. And then there is what's happening on the ground. And so to try and figure those things out and understand why we're being presented with a particular story and use our tools of analysis to kind of figure out what is really happening on the ground based on what we know is happening in our own community. Well, without shoehorning it in too much, I mean, even climate change, right? I mean, the the narrative that we've gotten from the media has been like, oh, it's not that bad of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but in reality, like, if we actually addressed the, the causes of climate change, these real human causes of it, um, we would really have to shake things up. Like, it couldn't, things couldn't continue the way that they have been. And that's a real, like, challenge to our current economic and, like, political systems. So, yeah, it's very much the narrative that we're being presented that we're having to fight against absolutely mm. but people are brave oh yeah edward yeah. snowden is a mate like that is incredible that he put his life on the line like that and gave everything up to give us this information mm -hmm. the question is what do we do with it now yeah and actually i was thinking about that of um yeah how do we take bits of of people's courage uh into our own lives moving forward and before the show we were talking about this of um and I know a, a teacher of mine has always said this, is that there's no going back. And so where do we go from here all together and how do we connect our struggles, I think is really, really essential. Uh, and I think as educators too, which we all are, it really is our task as both educators and, and people who are continuing to learn is to really examine history and really find the truth of this world um, and get our students to critically think about that. Because I think back what we started with, with Occupy and what I was saying was a, a valid critique of it is that there was a um, class lens missing from the stuff around distribution. And so I think we have to look at the system of, of capitalism and Think about it not, which we've been taught it's an economic system, but really think about it as a social and political system. And what does it do to people's lives? And how does capital, which is really the continued race for profit and to accumulate, how does that absorb everything into it? So if we think about the climate, how does that absorb the environment and destroy the environment? If we think about race, if we think about any of these things that, that we've been talking about, uh, how is that related and how can that also help us move forward in thinking about that? 
the idea for me is that none of these struggles are separate from the uh, from the last right mm -hmm. and i think that what happens because like in school we've been taught to separate subjects that we separate out these single issues mm -hmm. right as if this is the this is what's going to make my life better if if cops stop shooting black people or this is what's going to make my life better if people can recycle you know and for me that's not it is a much larger and intricate system that we need to analyze and figure out in order to both work together and be in solidarity with one another but also to have any chance at surviving mm -hmm. and there is hope like i find like thinking about after anna made this really nice beautiful list on our document for the show today and it has this you know it's from 2010 to 2020 what's been happening with people what kind of movements have been happening and it's like wow there is so much happening. And you didn't really, like, it for me, looking at that list, it wasn't until, like, really looking at it, I'm like, no, no, there was a lot that happened this past decade that really shook things up for, yeah. you know, a lot of the, the way that we experience and, and live in the world. So, you know, very much like you both have said, like, we need to we need to dive deeper into this and, and uh, dig it out more and, and see where we can make those connections to not just address our own, you know, concerns and, and goals and missions, but, like, also those of others because seeing them succeed is just as important for us I think absolutely so I think also just something you said Nick reminded me of this about the the climate catastrophe whatever you want to call it is that I hear so much of oh well we won't be here in 15 years anyway and I feel like we yeah. have to I, I really get so annoyed when people say that because it's like oh okay like so you're not going to do anything? Yeah, and I feel like <laughs> yeah. we have to really um, resist that and, like, resist that nihilistic thinking mm -hmm. because we don't know. We do not know uh, what the way forward is. We need to look at what people have done. And people throughout history have done amazing, incredible things and fought back against the most repressive forces. And so, you know, if we round up this decade, it's... If, Again, it's not just this decade. This decade has risen out of the, the past history. Mm -hmm. And how do we keep pushing? How do we keep learning? And how do we go forward with hope? And I think a very like disciplined hope. Because to have those thoughts uh, is, is really hopeless and it zaps energy. And it really, what when we get into that thinking, it only goes to help capital. It only goes to help those people benefiting off um, the way the world is organized right now. That makes me think about what you were just saying, like how capital kind of holds on to everything and sucks it in and kind of turns it up and then spits it back out, right? Is that our imagination is also captivated by capitalism and that we need to move beyond it. Mm -hmm. And that we can do that by reading history. But I find oftentimes, I, I myself even have these thoughts, right? That like, the world will end before capitalism does, right? And so that thinking is not just mine, mm -hmm. I believe. I believe we've been, like, programmed or at least pushed to think in that way so that we cannot imagine a future where people are not exploited. And I think that as we go out here, we have to wrap up, is that for our listeners to, you know, I really liked doing that last night where I was really inspired by these images and by people taking to the street and people doing really brave um, individual acts, but also as, as part of a movement. And people do such brave things every single day. 
a really quick thing is that um, we are actually going to be showing the Snowden documentary called Citizen Four, January 25th. It's a Saturday at 5 p.m. at Epsilon Spires in Brattleboro. And that will be on our Facebook page. Uh, we do, though, have to get out of here. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New, Happy year. new Decade. Yeah. <laughs> the struggle continues. <laughs> Oh,